All right, hear the word of the Lord from Hebrews. For it was fitting that he for whom and by whom all things exist in bringing many sons to glory should make the founder of their salvation perfect through suffering. For he who sanctifies and those who are sanctified all have one source. That is why he is not ashamed to call them brothers, saying, I will tell of your name to my brothers. In the midst of the congregation, I will sing your praise. And again, I will put my trust in him. And again, behold, I and the children God has given me. Since therefore the children share in flesh and blood, he himself likewise partook of the same things, that through death he might destroy the one who has the power of death, that is the devil, and deliver all those who through fear of death were subject to lifelong slavery. For surely it is not angels that he helps, but he helps the offspring of Abraham. Therefore, he had to be made like his brothers in every respect, so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in the service of God to make propitiation for the sins of the people. For because he himself has suffered when tempted, he is able to help those who are being tempted. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Morning. Good to be with you. Good to see you. My name is Mike, and I'm a pastor here. Uh, as we continue our study of the book of Hebrews, I have a question for you to ponder here at the start. Why do you believe what you believe? I've said it before beliefs dictate behavior, and people think, feel, make decisions, hold values, and move through life based upon a certain set of beliefs. And beliefs are rooted in one's worldview, one's convictions about humanity's origin, our purpose, our trajectory. One's worldview defines the context within which one's morality functions. Point being, human beings are creatures of belief, which means we all are people of faith. Any construct that seeks to explain how and why we are here is necessarily an article of faith. Richard Dawkins, Sam Harris, Salman Rushdie, Christopher Hitchens, these are all brilliant guys, but as much as it might make them squirm to admit it, every last one of them is a man of faith. It's just that their faith is in themselves. They are trusting their own interpretation of reality. As such, every single person in the world is religious. Even the most ardent atheist. Everyone believes something about how and why we are here. Some meta-narrative which gives meaning and purpose to our existence. Many of our beliefs are culturally informed and shaped by our upbringing. A kid from China might grow up heavily influenced by Buddhism or Taoism. A kid from Saudi Arabia will grow up within a nearly homogenous expression of Islam. A kid from Russia will grow up in various ways shaped by the Orthodox Church. A kid from Mobile, Alabama 
will likely grow up enculturated by the Southern Baptist Church. You get the idea. And beyond the country in which we were raised, we're all products of our families of origin. Sometimes it's a mixed bag. You know, my dad was Jewish, my mom was Catholic kind of thing. But one way or another, the very nature of being raised means that all sorts of values, beliefs, and explanations about the world were actively taught to us or passively caught by us. As young people, we imbibe so much. We're like sponges. And so I ask you again, why do you believe what you believe? I'm not trying to cast doubt on your convictions. Far from it. If you were here this morning and you identify as a follower of Christ, I am convinced you are on the right path, the narrow path. It's a difficult path, particularly in this post-Christian society in which we live. But others have walked this difficult path before. Indeed, in the passage Elizabeth read a little bit ago, the author of Hebrews is wanting to encourage the Jewish Christians in first century Italy to hold firm despite pressure to compromise, despite the temptation that existed for them to deny Christ, the message of Hebrews aims to furnish these embattled Christians with perspective, resolve, and confidence that their beliefs, in fact, were rooted in the truest, richest, and most fruitful soil there is, the gospel of Jesus Christ. Hebrews is a highly theological book. There's no way getting around that. Now, literarily, it's one of the most beautiful and sophisticated books, not just in the New Testament, but really in the whole Bible. Uh, with its thorough exegesis of the Old Testament, Hebrews is a, a breathtaking example of biblical theology and pastoral wisdom. And so, whereas at first glance, our passage today and maybe feels like more of the same, you know, highly theological and somewhat complex. My hope, by the time we're done this morning, is to show how very practical and down-to-earth this message is. Across these nine verses here at the end of chapter 2, the author of Hebrews covers the, the gamut of human experience. And at each point, he brilliantly shows how Jesus fulfills and completes the human experience, how the gospel dignifies and directs our lives toward its one and only purpose, which is the glory of God via life in Christ. For Christians, we believe what we believe because for every question lodged in our minds, for every longing aching in our hearts, the only truly satisfactory answer is found in Jesus Christ. I hope today we'll confirm that. Uh, to that end, as we work through these verses, the outline that will guide our way forward is as follows. Number one, why we suffer, the purpose of Jesus' perfection. Number two, why we worship, the efficacy of Jesus' praise. Number three, why we hope, the beauty of Jesus' participation. And number four, why we resist the necessity of Jesus' propitiation. That's a good outline, folks. Let's enjoy that for a second. 
First, let's consider why we suffer the purpose of Jesus' perfection. Let's jump right in. Verse 10. For it was fitting that he, for whom and by whom all things exist, in bringing many sons to glory, should make the founder of their salvation perfect through suffering. For he who sanctifies and those who are sanctified all have one source. Verse 10 begins, for it was fitting that he. The KJV says, it became him. The HCSB states, it was entirely appropriate that he. Wycliffe translated it, it beseemed him. It was fitting that, it was fitting that Jesus should suffer. That's unexpected. You see, the idea that the Son of God should suffer like a criminal and die on a cross was scandalous, perplexing, and ultimately offensive. Holding to such a strange doctrine as the necessity of the crucifixion was a challenging endeavor for these early Christians, socially and otherwise. What did Paul write in 1 Corinthians 1, 22 and 23? For Jews demand signs and Greeks seek wisdom, but we preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to Jews and folly to Gentiles. In his book on preaching, Pastor Tim Keller reasoned as follows. This will be familiar to some of you. I've referenced it before. He writes, each society has a worldview or world story or cultural narrative that shapes the identities and assumptions of those in that society. In general, the Greeks valued philosophy, the arts, and intellectual attainments, while the Jews valued power and practical skill over discursive thought. Paul challenges both cultural narratives with the cross of Jesus. To the Greeks... A salvation that came not through elevated thought and philosophy, but through a crucified Savior was the opposite of wisdom. It was foolishness. And to the Jews, a salvation that came not through power, through a deliverer who overthrew the Romans, but through a crucified Savior was the opposite of strength. It was weakness. Paul uses the gospel to confront each culture with the idolatrous nature of its trusts and values. And here... The author of Hebrews is substantiating the claim he made earlier in verse 9 that Jesus was, for a little time, made lower than the angels, arguing that it was right and good for such a thing to happen. In plain terms, verse 10 is stating, it made good sense that the Son of God should suffer. But why? Well, because Jesus had to walk through hell in order to inaugurate heaven. Jesus had to live a life of perfect obedience in order to qualify as a perfect substitute. Qualify, you say? Well, that sounds heretical. Well, let's look at how the author states it in verse 10. For it was fitting that he, for whom and by whom all things exist, in bringing many sons to glory, here it is, should make the foundation of their salvation perfect through suffering. Now, the question you should be asking is, wait, wait a minute, is he suggesting that Jesus was at some point not perfect? Does this verse indicate that Jesus somehow had room to grow that there was a time when he was less than a sufficient savior? Well, the answer is somewhat nuanced. Let it be stated 
Jesus was always perfect, okay? There was never a time when Jesus did not perfectly obey the will of his Father in heaven. But we must not forget that Jesus was fully human. He wasn't simply like a human. Okay, this isn't the ancient heresy of docetism. No, he was fully human. As such... As an eight-year-old kid, for instance, when Jesus confronted the kinds of temptations and sins common to the life of eight-year-olds, Jesus perfectly obeyed, resisting temptation and choosing righteousness every time. But the kinds of temptations and sins Jesus encountered as an eight-year-old were qualitatively different than the kinds of Uh, temptations he experienced as, say, a 28-year-old, right? The jeers and taunts of uh, prepubescent boys in the streets are quite different than the threats and accusations being leveled at him by a Jewish priest or Roman praetor. Jesus needed to successfully endure the 40 days in the wilderness during which Satan tempted him three times. Jesus needed to successfully navigate his earthly ministry, which was full of antagonism from the Jewish establishment and opposition from the Roman authorities. He had to perfectly be faithful through all that, and he was Jesus had to walk obediently through that fateful Holy Week on the way to the cross. He had to be betrayed by Judas. He had to be apprehended by the Roman guards in the Garden of Gethsemane. He had to be whipped and mocked. He had to withstand Pilate. He had to carry his own cross to Calvary. He had to be raised up on that grotesque and bloody tree, all the while praying for the forgiveness of those who knew not what they were doing. All of that, all of that, in a sense, completed his perfecting. Make sense? He was the only one perfectly equipped to do the job. And while it is true that he was uniquely born to do it, it is also true to say that he alone earned it. Jumping ahead to Hebrews 5, although he was a son, he learned obedience through what he suffered, and being made perfect, he became the source of eternal salvation to all who obey him. Jesus' experience in human flesh was complete, and through it all, he remained perfectly obedient, and because on the cross, All of our sin was laid on him such that, in the words of the Apostle Paul, Jesus became sin, 2 Corinthians 5, 21, which was our assurance of pardon from earlier. Well, that means that, in the words of one theologian, Jesus was, in a very real way, rendered horribly perfect as our atonement. Think about that. our horribly perfect atonement. And that has wonderful implications for us. R. Kent Hughes writes, It was impossible for God to fully identify and thus fully sympathize with mankind apart from Christ's incarnation and human experience. 
But now Christ's perfection makes possible an unlimited capacity to sympathize with those exposed to troubles and temptations in this life, which is partly what the author of Hebrews was getting at when he wrote in the first part of verse 11, for he who sanctifies and those who are sanctified all have one source, which is a more formal, or formal way of saying we're family. God, our Father, Christ, our brother, in the Spirit, we are made one with him. He sanctifies us, and he is able to do that perfectly because he's the only one who triumphed over suffering, sin, and death itself. And so in one fell swoop, the author is flipping the script He's taking something that was a major cultural and religious objection, right? The weakness and foolishness of a crucified Savior. And showing how it's actually the crown jewel of the Christian faith. This sympathetic God-man who can save to the uttermost because he perfectly endured. The author is showing the glory and goodness of the very thing so many people found offensive and shameful. This would have been like soothing ointment on a sore wound for these first century Christians whose faith was being attacked. You see, as Christians encounter suffering, we are assured in Christ that God is using it for our ultimate good. Because Jesus perfectly suffered, we can patiently endure, knowing that through trial and tribulation, we are being remade, sanctified, first part of verse 11. Folks, that's huge. And for those of you who've been in and around the church for a long time, it may sound a bit familiar to you, but we need to appreciate anew how radically good the the sympathetic suffering of our Savior is. I could go on, but we need to keep moving to our next point. Let's consider why we worship the efficacy of Jesus' praise back to the text, latter part of verse 11. That is why he is not ashamed to call them brothers, saying, I will tell of your name to my brothers. In the midst of the congregation, I will sing your praise. And again, I will put my trust in him. And again, behold, I and the children God has given me. Because by and through the Spirit, we are united to Christ. Because of the saving, sanctifying work of Christ on our behalf, Jesus is not ashamed to call us family, brothers and sisters. Imagine how encouraging that must have been to these embattled first century Christians. How encouraging it is to us to know that the spiritual presence of Christ is with us in our midst right now. His voice joining with our own as we raise our songs to the glory and praise of our Heavenly Father. What does verse 10 say? In the midst of the congregation, I will sing your praise. Do you think about that as we sing our songs? You see, the fervor and joy of our worship has very little to do with the skill 
of the musicians and vocalists leading us or your ability to keep rhythm or sing on key. Good worship isn't an issue of quality or execution. It's a matter of the heart. Imagine Jesus standing shoulder to shoulder with you, lifting up his own voice alongside yours. How might that change your posture and engagement? And this is one of the reasons why corporate worship is so irreplaceably important. I've used this illustration before, but it's been a while, 2014. Do I have your permission to reuse an illustration from over eight years ago? Uh, It's from the original animated classic, The Lion King. If you've watched the movie, then you'll remember the scene in which Simba, the young cub, runs away from home and finds himself ensnared in the thorny clutches of the hyena's lair. It's dark and foreboding, and he's cornered and scared as the hyenas lick their lips and close in on him. Little Simba musters all his energy and roars. But all that comes out is a measly little squeak. Nothing more than a strained cat's meow. The hyenas respond with a chorus of mocking laughter, falling upon themselves and reveling in the fact that he's theirs for the taking. As they compose themselves and resume their aggressive advance upon their prey, uh, in desperation... Simba attempts yet another roar, but as he opens his mouth, this time what appears to come out is a roar so powerful, so thunderous, so authoritative that the very ground shakes. At first, we're led to believe the little Simba, oh, he found his voice, only to realize that King Mufasa had shown up to save the day, and it was actually his voice roaring at the very moment Simba opened his mouth. And that makes me think of Hebrews 2.10. You know, we might think that our worship sounds like a bunch of measly little squeaks. Maybe we fumble through songs, you know, the slides are all mixed up, we're off key. But in a mystical way that I cannot explain, the king is here by and through His Spirit, and His perfect praise is joined with ours, and it ascends to the Father as a fragrant and pleasing offering. Our, our, our joyful little noise becomes a melodious roar of praise that gladdens and glorifies God. Hallelujah. Just like when God the Father looks upon us He sees not the the dirty rags of our sinful rebellion, but rather the righteous robes of Christ, so too. When He hears us, the Father hears not our half-hearted, distracted mumblings, but the worshipful roar of Christ Himself. Now, before moving on, another interesting but crucial realization that must be Made is that the three Old Testament references made here in quick succession, Psalm 22, 22, Isaiah 8, 17, and then Isaiah 8, 18, 
uh, they all share in their original context the same uh, emotional circumstance, as it were, and that is suffering. So whereas you may have thought that the author took like a weird right turn from talking about suffering in one breath to then worship in the next, on further reflection, we realize that that Jesus' intimate involvement in our worship is actually especially meaningful precisely because of his identification with us as sufferers. It's how we can trust him and identify with him, verse 13. Not only do we identify with Jesus by and through the Spirit in the free gift of salvation, what is more astounding is that Jesus identifies with us in the shared experience of suffering. That's part of what dignifies our worship with him and of him. And I've said it many times before, worship is warfare. It's natural and common. It's natural and common for us to offer praise and thanksgiving when blessing comes, and that is right and good, but it's necessary and crucial for us to offer praise and adoration when suffering comes. Because Jesus is standing here, sanctifying us, singing with us, Amen. Next, let's consider why we hope. The beauty of Jesus' participation, back to the text, verse 14. Since therefore the children share in flesh and blood, he himself likewise partook of the same things, that through death he might destroy the one who has the power of death, that is the devil, and deliver all those who through fear of death were subject to lifelong slavery. For surely it is not angels that he helps, but he helps the offspring of Abraham. As is the case with much of Hebrews, there's a lot of theological content packed into each sentence and section, and that's certainly true here for verses 14 through 16. But I would argue the the crux of these verses is found in verse 15, wherein the author describes, quote, those who through fear of death were subject to lifelong slavery, end quote. Fear of death is a very, very real thing. For all of our great scientific and technological advancements and discoveries, death remains a great mystery to many, a problem to solve, a consequence to avoid, an ending to rewrite if possible. Indeed, if you've seen the most recent Avatar film, Uh, You'll remember that the the hot new resource being harvested from the whale-like creatures known as the Tulkun is their brain fluid called Amrita, which incredibly is able to stop aging. And even in the real world, immortality is big business nowadays. Some of the world's wealthiest people are currently, right now, investing obscene amounts of money into medical research and development aimed at extending and, in fact, cheating death. And I, for one, would love to to gain an audience with these folks to put this mystery to bed for them. A little market tip from yours truly. Invest your money elsewhere. (laughs) Romans 6.23, for the wages of sin is death. 
But the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. Death is unavoidable. Our sin obligates us to die. No getting around it. Nothing Jeff Bezos or Bill Gates can do about it. But in Christ, the sting of death is removed. 1 Corinthians 15, 54. What may have been Satan's triumph, the one who has the power of death, verse 14, death has become in the cross of Christ the very means of our salvation such that when our earthly days come to an end by grace through faith, the mortal puts on immortality, the perishable puts on the imperishable. Because Jesus so fully and completely participated in the human predicament and did so with perfect obedience unto death, even death on a cross. Well, that means that mere mortals like you and me can actually possess true and lasting hope. That death does not have the last word. That the grave is merely temporary. Not because of medical advancement or some breakthrough technology. No, because of the cross. Hear this wonderful encouragement from Paul to Timothy in his second letter. 2 Timothy 1, 8 through 10. Therefore, do not be ashamed of the testimony about our Lord, nor of me, his prisoner, but share in suffering for the gospel by the power of God, who saved us and called us to a holy calling, not because of our works, but because of his own purpose and grace, which he gave us in Christ Jesus before the ages began, and which now has been manifested through the appearing of our Savior Christ Jesus, who abolished death and brought life and immortality to light through the gospel. Come on. What peace. What blessed assurance. Hear the great reformer John Calvin reflecting on the work of Christ as it relates to the fear of death. It is from this fear that Christ has released us by undergoing our curse and thus taking away what was fearful in death. Although we must still meet death, let us nevertheless be calm and serene in living and dying when we have Christ going before us. Hallelujah. And finally, let's consider why we resist the necessity of Jesus' propitiation to the final verses of chapter 2, verse 17. Therefore, he had to be made like his brothers in every respect so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in the service of God to make propitiation for the sins of the people. For because he himself suffered when tempted, he is able to help those who are being tempted. Let's just define uh, propitiation right up front from IVP's Pocket Dictionary of Theological Terms, a handy little book sits on my shelf. It defines it like this. Propitiation is an offering that turns away the wrath of God directed against sin. According to the New Testament, God has provided the offering that removes the divine wrath. For in love, the Father sent the Son to be the propitiation or atoning sacrifice for human sin. 1 John 4.10, see also expiation. Quick way to remember the difference between expiation and propitiation is this. Expiation happens when God covers or removes your sin, uh, removes the guilt of sin. Think Psalm 103 verse 12, as far as the east is from the west, so far does he remove our transgression from us. And because of that, 
then propitiation, God's no longer angry with you, Hebrews 2, 17. So propitiation has to do with the object of expiation. Expiation happens through sacrificial atonement, at which point propitiation is there. So we go from being at odds with God, enmity, to then having fellowship with Him, favor. So propitiation restores our relationship with our Heavenly Father. And I love how the author of Hebrews describes the fullness of Christ's incarnational work. He says, first part of verse 17, that Jesus had to be made like his brothers in every respect. Why? So that, latter part of verse 17, he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in the service of God. You see, Jesus' services as a high priest on our behalf would be utterly ineffectual if he hadn't become fully human in every respect except for sinning. It wasn't simply convenient, it was absolutely necessary for Jesus to be made like his brothers, i.e. Abraham's offspring, verse 16. He didn't come to earth in the form of an angel, no. He condescended as a human being, flesh and blood, tears and sweat, laughter and sleep, temptation and trial, life and death, the full gamut. And that's the only way he qualifies as a faithful high priest in the service of God. Verse 18, for because he himself has suffered when tempted, he is able to help those who are being tempted. And this is why we fight the good fight of faith. This is why we run the race. This is why we resist temptation as we pray to do nearly every week in the Lord's prayer. Deliver us from evil, Lord. Help us resist. Why? Because now that we are in Christ, sinning is below our station. It's beneath our privilege. It's not congruent with who we are now. We are in Christ. The Father has embraced us with warm affection His wrath has been appeased, and we've been gifted the Holy Spirit who enables us to choose righteousness once again. Yes, there remains the very real residue of sin. That is true. And against that residue, we will continually battle until the day when Christ calls us home. In no way do I mean to demean or minimize the power of residual sin in that which remains of the old man. The appetites of the flesh and the weaknesses of the will are realities with which we must always contend in the journey of sanctification. But now that we are in Christ, by grace through faith, we have an ever-present help in trouble. As the psalmist tells us in Psalm 46, verse 1, Jesus really is our refuge and strength. He is at the ready. And the Spirit, as we learned during our time in Advent in the book of Romans, the Spirit intercedes for us with groanings too deep for words. Romans 8, verse 26. We resist because in Christ we can There is victory over sin in Jesus. I said it earlier. Even though Hebrews is is literarily uh, sophisticated and theologically 
complex, that doesn't mean it isn't intensely practical at the same time. The latter part of chapter 2 here covers the gamut of human experience from the purpose in our suffering to the efficacy of our worship to the beauty of our hope to the reason for our resistance in the fight of faith. Everywhere you look in the Christian life, Jesus is there having already completed and fulfilled and perfected through his righteous obedience. Christianity will always have its detractors and opponents. And as was the case in the first century, there will always be people tempting us to compromise our Christian convictions because they either don't understand the point of a suffering Savior or they simply can't abide the thought of it. But time and again, the various doctrines which the world so often finds upsetting and foolish about the gospel are in actuality the very entry points for its power and glory. Jesus' suffering gives our suffering purpose and dignity. Jesus' identification with us gives our worship depth and richness. Jesus' participation in death and victory over the grave furnish us with an eternal hope. Jesus' perfect priestliness gives us an ever-present advocate and helper. Listen, Muhammad never died for his people. Joseph Smith never willingly embraced execution as a worthy propitiation. Buddha never could act as a priest for his people. I mean, the list goes on and on. When you read a passage like Hebrews 10, Hebrews 2, 10 through 18, in comparison with other systems of belief out there, be it Islam or Hinduism or atheism and everything in between, there's nothing, there's nothing that comes even close to the staggering beauty and sheer scope of Christ's person and work in and through the gospel. Why do we believe? Because the gospel is profoundly true and perfectly good and powerfully complete. Listen, every single person alive today is clinging to certain articles of faith. It's just a question of which ones. Let us not be tempted uh, to neglect so great a salvation simply because the world and all of its blindness and ignorance scoffs and spits at the good news. Instead, may it propel us to good works, heartfelt worship, intercessory prayer, and a renewed sense of mission. Amen? Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we are so grateful for this uh, beautiful, poetic synthesis of truths here in the opening couple chapters of Hebrews. It's just uh, staggering, the beauty and scope. And we do pray as we continue to wade further into this deep, deep pool of, of glory that you would enable us to receive it all. Even though our minds and hearts are finite and certainly can't contain all of the, all of the glory, Lord, we pray that you would give us a, a better taste, a, a truer taste, a fuller taste of who you are and what you've done for us. Lord, in the 
next few moments as we come to the table and, and sing more songs. We pray that we will be reminded of your presence here with us, that it might deepen our sense of awe and wonder, and it might make us sing maybe just a little louder, knowing that you're standing here with us. In Jesus' name we do pray. Amen.